Hello, magical creatures. Thanks for tuning in. Today is all about trauma and addiction on the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. Today we will have the self-proclaimed trauma queen, Pablo Das himself. But first, a big thanks to everyone who made it to the Academy Talk on Sunday with Angu Devin Ashwood on Living an Authentic Life. For those who don't know, we host a live Dharma Talk at the first Sunday of every month on Zoom. The talk you're about to listen to was another one of those talks featuring Pablo. Um, You can get more information about attending one of our live Dharma Talks at BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash academy. A little update on the International Buddhist Recovery Summit. We have been getting a lot of registrations daily, so I'm really excited to see everyone together in one space from all different recovery modalities and all over the world. If you haven't had a chance to check out the four-day agenda, I just posted it online, so you can find it at BuddhistRecoverySummit.org. Yeah, it's just listed, four-day agenda. It's one of the first things on there. We have Creating Safer Spaces on Friday. We have a Recovery Moth Hour, I think most days, where people can share their recovery stories. We have open space every day for breakaway groups to cover topics like LGBTQ issues in our communities or go on outdoor activities like forest bathing and nature walks. It's all outlined in the four-day agenda that you can find on our page at Buddhist Recovery Summit. Okay, and now, here's Pablo. Welcome everyone to the Buddhist Recovery Network Academy. I'm Thomas Valentine, and today we have a teaching by Pablo Das on trauma, addiction, and self-regulation. Thanks for joining us. So I'll just go over the format for the next uh, half hour or so. Um, Pablo will guide us through a brief meditation. Um, I think he's going to ask some questions and then go into his talk. Uh, At any time during the program, if you have questions that you want to go over at the end of the talk, you can um, type that you can send them to me uh, using the chat field, which you can get to the chat box it's at the bottom of your screen it says chat if you click that it'll open up a little chat area on the side um yeah and then at the end when we go over questions and answers you can raise your hand you can click the raise hand icon and that'll let me know that you want to come on and ask your question directly to the teacher all of our teachings are given freely um so we have the, this amazing experience to have these teachers on um, and offer their experience in the ongoing practice of recovery. You have the ability to offer Donna um, the teaching of generosity. So we, I'll, I'll go ahead and post a link if you wanted to offer Donna to the teacher and Buddhist Recovery Network. Um, I'll just go ahead and post that in the chat field, and then I'll post that again at the end as well. 
Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about our teacher. Um, Pablo has been teaching Buddhist practice and principles since 2009 and practicing since 1991. He's a practitioner of somatic experiencing, a body-centered system for the management and resolution of trauma, and is currently assisting professional trainings. He was one of the founding treatment team at Refuge Recovery, a Buddhist trauma-informed outpatient treatment program for drug and alcohol addiction. He is trained as a holistic health coach at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition and studied food therapy under Anne-Marie Colbin at the Natural Gourmet Institute in New York City. Pablo currently maintains a private coaching practice integrating Buddhist practice and principle, trauma resolution, and holistic health models. Okay, Pablo, it's all you from here. I'll go ahead and unmute you and you can take over. I can speak. Mm -hmm. Oh, all of a sudden it's pull things in front of my face. There we go. Hello, humans. Um, I can't, I can only, I see that one. <laughs> I see one, I see one human. <clears throat> um, so the format, what we'll do is uh, we'll start with a, just a super short meditation because we don't have a lot of time. Um, and then uh, I'm going to ask just uh, you guys to if, kind of just to reflect on what your curiosity is about trauma and how it relates to addiction and also to the Dharma. And, um, and we'll just have a little bit of time for you to offer those, but uh, that'll be part of our meditation. And then um, I'll have some things to huh? tell you. That's really cute. That's adorable. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. Thank you very much. Um, so let's, uh, let's sit for a few. So take a posture that you can maintain for a bit and that invites wake, kind of wakefulness. And we're just going to do a quick body scan where we're going to uh, settle. And it might be interesting for you, since we're talking about trauma, which um, really relates to the cycle of activation and deactivation of the nervous system, just kind of name on a scale of one to 10. Like if 10 was, I'm as anxious and kind of blown out as possible, like I can't cope. And one is like, I'm perfectly settled and regulated. Just kind of notice where you are on that scale. So just give it a number, like you're a seven, you're a five, something like that. And then just bring your attention to the area in and around your head and soften your forehead. And soften the area in and around your eyes. Soften the muscles in your face that you speak and smile and express with. Soften the jaw, the, the jaw and the tongue and your lips. Just allowing the whole face to soften. And letting the shoulders fall away from the ears and just think about inviting a kind of softening or regulation down through the arms, through the large muscles, the elbow joints, the forearms, wrists, 
hands, fingers, softening. Let your arms be heavy, shoulders falling away from the ears. Softening the belly and really take a moment here. We hold a lot of tension in the belly. We brace against life and against our challenges and threats in the belly. Just really take a moment here and see there may be a couple different layers of softening that happen. But just bring your attention there and just see if you can debrace. And softening any bracing in the lower legs, the thighs, the knee joints, the calves, ankles, feet, toes. And think of just letting gravity do its work, just feel that the chair or the cushion or wherever you are is um, taking the full weight of your physical form. And soften, soften physically, soften internally, letting yourself be receptive if possible. And then on your own, just scanning back through the body and notice if anything else wants to soften that wasn't named. And then just for the last couple of minutes, find some place to anchor your attention. And it doesn't matter whether it's the traditional breath or if it's a physical point of contact, like your feet on the floor, or even sound, or something in the external visual field. The idea here is to connect, uh, direct your attention to something happening right now. And just rest your attention on it and allow it to be a kind of point of concentration. And just soften around that, it's a very simple thing.
And then just notice what your number is now on that scale of one to 10. So this is just working with awareness in this way has changed the way that you experience your level of activation. And just maybe the state of your nervous system. And then as we end, just using your reflective capacities, I'm curious what you're bringing into this uh, workshop in terms of questions. What, what is alive for you around this topic of trauma and addiction and dharma and how these things engage? What curiosities you have? What questions do you want answers to? And this will just help me uh, kind of help inform the conversation today. So letting go of the kind of formal practice and coming back into awareness of yourself in the room, in front of a screen with other humans distributed <laughs> geographically somewhere on the planet. I don't know. And um, I, I'm happy to hear what came up for you. If you have any um, curiosities or questions that came, you can either put it in the chat box. I, I have that open so I can see that, or you can just, I think you can raise your hand and we can just call on you and you can just speak like a human. So either way, what, uh, what came up for you? I see the one question, um, what is the edge between being, being with what is and self-regulation? That's actually a really great question. And I, I would actually reframe it so slightly to say, you know, the, because there is this um, Buddhist notion of non-reactivity, right? This idea that we can be present to whatever is happening without um, just, just essentially like, right, being with what is. Um, and, when it is too much to be with and that we want to do something else, right? We have to kind of pull back or, so yeah, that's going to be addressed in the, in the talk. Um, anything else? Jer, got a question? Yeah, uh, just in terms of what we wanted to talk about here today. Hey, Pablo, great to be here. Um, the thing I'm interested in is how to develop programs for recovery, like Refuge Recovery, and maybe like future programs that are similar to Refuge Recovery, but new. How to best build things like inventories and reading materials so that they're sensitive and capable and uh, we don't have to jump straight to it, but I'd love to hear your feedback on, I don't know if you have 
memories from back in the day of when that was being developed and whether you thought it was a good idea because well I, anyway, I remember, so yeah, that, that, I was just talking we were just talking about this beforehand um i've always thought the the inventory idea was a terrible idea um if, if we take the idea if we look through the lens of trauma being a kind of fairly central dimension of addiction experience uh, fairly universally that um, to have someone sit down and walk through, usually um, probably by themselves, but maybe, perhaps with somebody else who's not probably not trauma educated, um, it can be a really terrible idea. Um, so I'm not a big fan of the inventory idea. So for me, that's that's a kind of a throwback to a more traditional recovery um models that I, I just don't i don't find a lot of um use if we're looking through the trauma lens it's it can be re-traumatizing it can overwhelm people and we have to be very careful about about how that that works so and i in those because i was in all of those early conversations in the development of refuge recovery and um i was always against it and, um, and here's here's the other thing i want to say and maybe this is like a kind of a broader thing but what i'm also aware of is that people are not the same right so i i don't speak i have my i have firm opinions and, and experiences but i'm also aware that um there there is no one right way so i just want to tell you that i think i don't think there's any one right way to do this for people so because i know that there are people who have benefited from the inventory process um, but I, I would just say that if we're going to look at a trauma-informed version of recovery process, that we want to be super careful about that. And that there may, maybe there's a way if people find value in to do it that isn't just like a slog through re-experiencing really, really overwhelming things. So I'm aware of the time. We're already like almost 20 minutes in. So let me just kind of jump. Oh, was there anything else? Um, people, someone agrees. Okay, good. To, to be able to agree. <laughs> I skipped those. Okay. Great. Um, here's what I want to accomplish in our little bit of time. I want to talk about what trauma is and how it functions. And because um, I think not only is it an underappreciated dimension of the experiences of addiction, but it's also kind of like misunderstood or understood in a very simplistic way. And, and trauma is actually a very complex thing, potentially. Um, people think it's like, you know, you have an accident or you go to war or something and that's trauma, but trauma is much, much more um, nuanced and complex than that. So I'm gonna try to lay it out in a way that at least gives us some framework for at least what we can then begin to look at. So um, my definition of trauma that I work with is that trauma refers, when we talk about trauma, we're really talking about symptoms. So trauma refers to the symptoms one is left to manage when an event or an ongoing set of conditions overwhelms your capacity for presence and an empowered response to threat. So that's kind of long, I'm, I'm gonna unpack it, but I'm gonna say it one more time. Trauma refers to the symptoms one is left to manage when an event 
or an ongoing set of conditions overwhelms one's capacity for presence and an empowered response to threat. So let me break it down. Um, trauma, trauma in a, in a way, although there are some things that you could point to that you, you might say was a fairly universally potentially traumatizing for people. Ultimately, trauma is not really about the event. It has as much to do with the person and their constitution and their conditioning as it does the, the event itself. So one simple example of that that I always give is that uh, two people can be in a car accident together and only having pretty much the same experience, maybe you could argue that they're having it two feet to the right of the other person, but they can have the exact same experience and they're gonna have different, um, whether one is, experiences trauma or not, as a result of that same experience is not uh, predictable. We, we don't know what's, what another person is gonna experience. Am I, can you guys still hear me? My whole screen just did a weird shift. Okay. Um, so that's kind of an important thing because things that we think shouldn't be traumatizing to one person, and we might reference our own experience and say, well, I deal with that kind of thing all the time. It's not traumatizing to me. Um, not a great indicator. Everybody's different and because of their constitution and their history and, and their, their lifetime of experience, um, a person might experience certain things as overwhelming when another person doesn't. So it is a kind of a very uh, personal experience in a way. So symptoms are anything from, I mean, I'm gonna actually kind of go through how trauma affects people but you can imagine what the symptoms are. They're things like anxiety and depression and feeling edgy or feeling like you can't uh, cope with things, uh, overwhelm, all kinds of things like that. Um, but I'm gonna go more deeply into that. So trauma refers to the symptoms one is left to manage when an event or an ongoing set of conditions overwhelms. So this is kind of important because it points to the distinction between some trauma is is related to a singular event, like a car accident, or let's say you get attacked by a dog, or, or you know, we talk a lot about sexual assaults in, in, the, in the culture right now, where we have kind of one experience um, that leaves us managing some kind of symptoms after the fact. So that, those are known as shock traumas. So those are things that um, you know, can happen once and they can have an impact on your nervous system in a way that you're managing um, all kinds of different lovely experiences after the fact. Or we can have trauma that occurs as a result of an ongoing set of conditions. So, and this is where we come into an interesting sort of nuance about what trauma actually is, because when we talk about events or ongoing sets of conditions, we're really talking about the difference between Shock traumas, which as I said, are single events, usually like in adulthood, but versus something like developmental trauma, which is, has to do with the environment that usually that we grow up in, which affects our capacity for self-regulation based on our environment. So as we're growing up, for example, 
um, and you are in an environment with your primary caregivers and with the adults in your life and the general environment, if you have the experience that, you know, you are attuned to and tended to and that your needs are met and your experience in the world is mirrored in the appropriate way and kind of all the things happen, then you'll, you'll develop, your brain and your nervous system will develop in such a way that you're constituted as a fairly solid person with a lot of resilience and a lot of capacity to kind of meet life's challenges and to meet your responsibilities. If that doesn't happen, um, because we're so vulnerable as young people, I mean, we come into the world incredibly vulnerable, right? We, as, as babies, we literally cannot feed ourselves. We cannot defend ourselves. We can't care for ourselves in any way. We are utterly dependent on the relationships in our life to our primary caregivers to care for us. And if we don't get the sense that uh, people are paying attention to us, that our needs are getting met, that, um, that the world is a safe place, then things start to happen. And in psychology, they talk about adaptions. So there's psychological, physiological adaptions that happen. And so those are the symptoms of developmental trauma that we take into the whole rest of our lives that we end up in therapy talking about when we're in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, right? After we're done drinking to try to cope with it all. Um, so th that's an interesting piece is that trauma can happen in one single event. It can happen over the course of a long period of time. And it speaks to the different kinds of trauma. Um, so there's shock trauma, there's developmental trauma. And the other kind of trauma that, that is talked about even less, uh, even in the trauma trainings that I go through and assist in, is the impact of what I would call social or um, historical trauma. And this is the trauma that people who are, um, you know, of African descent, queer people, uh, women in the culture, uh, people of Jewish heritage who, who, are, who have gone through, who have been marginalized, who are targets of violence, who are socially marginalized. Um, all of this has a, a tremendous impact. And we know now that in, in the study of genetics that, that trauma is transferred epigenetically uh, to other generations. So historical trauma refers to the kind of trauma that exists in you as symptomatically related to events that you didn't even experience. There were experiences that, um, you know, usually it seems to skip a generation. So you could be holding generational trauma or historical trauma and managing those experiences when it's actually your grandmother or grandfather that had the experience. And so that's a trip, right? So just to kind of open that up, you know, to see that there are different kinds of trauma. And that it's not as simple as just like a kind of one event. There's a lot going on. And it's really the developmental stuff, um, maybe even coupled with the historical trauma, that makes you more susceptible. So if we go back to this idea of the car accident, what is it that if two people can have the same experience, but only one of them experiences sort of trauma symptoms afterwards, so then, the, then we can kind of understand that. Well, it has a lot to do with how they're constituted, how their brains and nervous systems developed early in life in their, in their environments with their primary caregivers and in their schools and in their cultures. So um, that's an important nuance that, that our susceptibility to trauma has everything to do with our history and our conditioning.
Okay, so, um, and, and yeah, and also there's another point connected to that is when I talk about, oh, I didn't really go through the whole definition, so let me finish that. Um, when an event, so trauma refers to symptoms that one is left to manage when an event or an ongoing, uh, ongoing set of conditions overwhelms your capacity for presence or an empowered response to threat. This is really, really important. Um, trauma by its nature is overwhelming, which means that we can't, in, in, the, in the direct experience of it, we are not able to cope with the experience. It overwhelms our capacity to stay present to it. So we dissociate, we, we, have, we have to adapt in certain ways to survive. We get small, we, get in, we become invisible, we become conflict avoidant, we have all this sort of stuff that happens. Or it just literally, because of the force of the experience, the, the nature of the threat, we cannot stay present to it. So it, trauma is almost o always overwhelming, which is a very interesting uh, thing to try to navigate when we talk about Buddhist meditation, because there's this thought in Buddhist meditation, which goes, speaks to that one question about when is it appropriate to be with things and, and then when is it appropriate actually to, you know, to back off and go to self-regulatory strategies. Um, that's an important question because I would argue that there are experiences related to trauma that we cannot turn towards and fully know, as they say in the, in the Dharma, right? That there are things that are in fact are overwhelming. And very often in the Dharma, your teachers will tell you to just go back and sit with it without giving you any real perspective about what that might actually mean when the, when the content is so overwhelming. So that's a really important aspect of this definition that it is something that is by its nature overwhelming. So it means that as we are going to try to uh, work with the content that is connected to trauma, we, have to, we need a different map. We cannot just go back and sit with it. That's not how it works. Um, we have to develop a certain skill set. We have to develop certain capacities. We probably should navigate um, traumatic content, not by ourselves, but rather in relationship with somebody who knows how it functions, who knows the terrain. And when we get to actually the, the space where we can approach the content itself, we should do it in a certain way that we're managing only small enough bits of the experience that we, we won't get overwhelmed and re-traumatized again. So that's where the value of other systems comes in. That the Dharma, in my view, is not, um, is not equipped really and is not, was never articulated to uh, resolve trauma. I think it has a bunch of tools that can be very helpful in managing and navigating traumatic experiences, um, but it's not a trauma resolution system in my view. It doesn't mean that people can't have the experience of resolution of trauma because everybody's different, but by and large, it's not a great idea to try to navigate traumatic content head on alone without really understanding how trauma functions. Um, and the last part of the definition is uh, that it, not only does it overwhelm our capacity for presence, but an empowered response to threat. Now, trauma is not only usually overwhelming, but it's almost always about threat. And it's not just about physical threat, although it certainly is that a lot of the time. It's also about relational threat, 
and the threat of your ego and identity. So, for example, queer people can have the experience of, and the reason that people so urgently need to come out is because they can't live in the experience of suppressing what is so essential about their identity. You have to be able to, in your relationships, move through the world um, in coherence with who you actually are, right? So when I talk about it, like, we have to be able to have an empowered response to that threat. And the threat is real, right? The threat, there is a threat of violence for queer people in the world and other marginalized people. There is a, a potential to be maybe more painfully and, and more um, importantly, marginalized and ostracized from the kind of human family, the, from the social um, context of your life, which is really where the trauma um, happens to a great extent. So um, I always say the movement of trauma healing is a movement from disempowerment or victimization, the experience of not having any agency into developing a capacity for uh, empowered self-protective responses to physical or interpersonal threat. And that has been very interesting for me to land there as a practitioner of both Buddhism and somatic experiencing, that I spend a lot of time not actually working with people around generosity and compassion and kindness and all of those sort of Dharma things, but actually really working with people around being attuned to what they're experiencing, the sense of liking and disliking things, not overriding those, but honoring them and coaching people to uh, be boundaried with people and to be able to assert themselves in relationship. People with trauma histories are generally conflict avoidant and deferential to others and um, get overwhelmed just at the, the thought of having to, sometimes just even socially engage anybody at all, right? So, so let me talk about that. There are five ways that uh, trauma impacts people. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the nervous system activates and deactivates, and then we'll get to the kind of pieces that I want to give you of um, practice, kind of practice-oriented things. Trauma affects people in five main ways. One, it, it, as I've said many times, it, it affects our capacity to emotionally regulate ourselves. So we become kind of overwhelmed, dissociated. Uh, we can't think straight. Our cognitive capacities go offline. We can't form sentences. We, we've frozen. Like there, there's just like all of this ways that, that the threat of trauma affects our emotional capacity to regulate. And because that capacity is developed in relationship to our primary caregivers early in life, um, it's not even recoverable so much as we have to actually develop it for the first time. So there's that. Um, trauma also affects our perception. So you can, if you have a trauma history, you might move through the world constantly being attuned to threat, right? That we're not, we're not attuned to what's going well and to what is, uh, okay, we're constantly scanning the universe for threat. Um, trauma impacts people at the level of self-image. So when we talk about, we counter this a lot in, in you know, meditation mindfulness circles that people have a lot of negative self-talk. Um, a lot of that is explained through trauma. There's a way in which, especially when we're young, that people don't look at the people around them and say, hey, there's something wrong with their capacity to be attuned and responsive or to love. 
we talk about, oh, there must be something wrong with me. And that's actually adaptive because you feel as a kid, if there's something wrong with you, then you can fix yourself and then you can uh, kind of save the relationship, which itself is tantamount to surviving when you're young. So that's where all of these kind of adaptions and all these kind of messed up things happen psychologically that we end up, you know, encountering very directly in meditation. Um, trauma affects our relational capacities. As I said, we become conflict avoidance, we're deferential, we, um, you know, we are unable really to form relationships necessarily in a healthy way. Sometimes we love people who uh, are not available or to whom they don't, we only love them sort of enough because we understand that the risk of losing is so destabilizing and traumatizing that we, you know, we, we find, we start to encounter these patterns or where we like have emotional connections with some people and sexual connections with other people, but the two don't ever kind of um, come together, so to speak. Um, so that kind of thing, all kinds of relational capacities. And finally, trauma affects us physically. It changes our muscu muscles. Um, you, can, you can look at people sometimes and know they have a trauma history. They're just the way that their bodies kind of like, you know, there's all kinds of physical things. And it affects us viscerally. So our digestion, our uh, respiration, uh, our, our sexual function, all kinds of things. So the effects of trauma are broad and nuanced as well. So let me just kind of get into this last piece. We have these nervous systems that basically are equipped and, and biological systems, physiological systems that are equipped to help us respond to threat. So normally what happens in the cycle of activation and deactivation with a kind of normal human being is that something happens that could be potentially threatening. We become activated. We orient to this to see, is there actually a threat here? If there is, that energy of self-protection then finds the appropriate avenue of response in fighting and confronting the thing, running away from the thing, appealing to uh, the relational field for support or allyship or protection. Um, and if none of those things are available, then we kind of end up doing some less skillful things like we might rationalize ourselves into a kind of delusional stance around it. Oh, it's not that bad. It, nothing bad's going to happen. It's kind of we manage things by rationalizing or we collapse. And most people who are traumatized are in some version of a collapsed state. So trauma healing really is about taking that energy that is bound in the system um, of activation or, or the flatness or collapse and recognizing that really that if, if we had a healthy response to threat, what would happen is we would activate, we would utilize that energy for an appropriate expression of self-protection by fighting, fleeing, appealing to our relational field for protection and allyship, all the things. And if that energy doesn't find an appropriate avenue of expression, it just really, it has to go somewhere. So it goes and collapses on itself. And that's where we basically have this experience of like, there's a revving going on where we're kind of uptight, but we're also depressed at the same time. And then our, our nervous system will kind of vacillate between those two things. Where it's like the break in the gas are on at different times, right? And we just, we feel like we're just not sort of stable and settled. So the movement of trauma healing is actually, um, from a somatic experiencing perspective, is about 
becoming attuned to that energy of self-protection that never has found appropriate expression and, and working physically, that's why we call it somatic experiencing, to find ways to reprogram ourselves so that that energy can be directed um, to appropriate um, means of expression, the self-protective means. So let me talk to you a little bit about self-regulatory self strategies. Um, I've made, I have my little notes in front of me. And basically there's six ways that I can, that I uh, draw on to self-regulate when um, I want to find a way to self-regulate without using external substances. And I guess I should say this, that my view of addiction, when I'm looking through the trauma lens, is really that addiction is a way of self-regulating the regulation, the dysregulation connected to trauma for which we've never developed a capacity to regulate like a kind of normal human being would. So that's the difference from my point of view between normies and people who are quote unquote addicts is that there isn't a built-in self-regulatory capacity on board. So we have to go outside of ourselves to use substances or behaviors to find that means of regulation. So addiction in my view is, is a kind of a, you know, a, it's a way of regulating that, you know, we persist in, in engaging despite the fact that it has ultimately negative consequences that compound our suffering. Um, so, and therefore, recovery means that we have to recover a capacity for self-regulation without substances and behaviors that compound our suffering. So that kind of, if you look through the trauma lens, for me, that reframes this whole matter of what addiction is and what constitutes recovery. So when I'm working with people, I'm very interested in how I can help them develop the capacities that were either lost through trauma or never developed in the first place. So six regulatory strategies, and then I'll open up to questions. One, we are, we are um, wired to regulate through other people. So um, other people are the best possible way for human beings to regulate themselves. We go and we ask for help, we tell our story to other people, we look for allyship and companionship and all those sorts of things as we go through things. People with a trauma history generally tend towards isolation and that only compounds our, our suffering because we don't ever really think, we never learned that generally that we can go to relationship for help. So there's that. Um, movement is an important dimension to how um, uh, traumatic energy gets gets um, processed. So we can actually, sometimes it's helpful just to get up and do walking meditation rather than trying to sit through it. In somatic experiencing, we don't override um, impulses to move like you do in normal meditation. We actually become aware of them and we actually facilitate them. So there's that. Um, for me, one of the best ways to regulate when I'm feeling anxious or, or kind of dissociated or whatever is to move my attention from inside to outside. We call this like just orienting to the external visual and sonic field. So this is really critical actually. It's, and it's, it's, you know, on that scale of one to 10, it's almost always worth about two points of downward regulation. So if you're an eight, and you just remember to move your attention out 
and connect to something in the external visual field, especially something that you like. Like, wow, there's some nice flowers over there. Rest your attention on that, you will uh, deregulate. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, one of which, of course, is you're moving your attention from the story and the content to something outside of yourself that isn't that content. Um, also, orienting to the external visual field and the sonic field is what we do as human beings to establish that there's not a threat. So if there's a kind of a, uh, like something happens and we, what do we do? We go, we look and we listen. And if we establish there's no threat, then the natural cycle of deactivation kicks in. And so even when um, nothing's happening, but we feel anxious or we're feeling that trauma content, if you just move your attention from inside yourself to outside yourself, visually and sonically, uh, you'll, you'll get a couple of points of, of deactivation just off that alone. Um, reflective capacities. Um, I love to give people the possibility of reflecting on regulating situations or beings through imagery. So just remembering a place that you were that was perhaps beautiful or someplace where you felt you just like there was a room in New York City that I used to go to as a musician and play in that just felt like the safest place in the world. So I can just, using my reflective capacities, I mean, it just, it brings a smile to my face just to bring the image up, right? I have another place in, in San Diego, Torrey Pines, which is this park on the cliff, maybe some of you have been there, is one of my favorite places in the world to go. So I bring that imagery in, there's a kind of, um, it, it provokes a kind of some warm feelings and I will get some, you know, and, and you're crowding out the content of the trauma anyway. So when you utilize internal reflective imagery, you're crowding out any other imagery. So you're gonna get a, a, dis, a kind of deactivation. Um, and I'll give you this last thing and then I'll turn it over to you for a conversation. I think we're getting close to our time, I'm not sure. Um, something called 54321. And what that is, is very simply, it's very much like it's involved with external um, orientation, but it adds a phrase. And 54321 just means that you name five things that you see, five things that you hear, and then you go down to four. So four things you see, four things you hear, and then three, three things you see, three things you hear. I never get to three. By the time I'm done with like five or four, I'm pretty much there. And it's my favorite practice. In rehabs, people have told me this has kept them from relapsing. It's so simple and very powerful, and it just is like this. So if I start to get kind of, I'm feeling um, overwhelmed or something, I will go, I'm aware of the Buddha statue. I'm aware of the bushes outside of my room. I'm aware of the couch. I'm aware of the pen on the table. I'm aware of a notebook. That's five. And they go to sounds. I'm aware of the kind of refrigerators making sound. I'm aware of traffic. I'm aware of birds. I'm aware of the refrigerator again. I'm aware of leaves rustling. And just doing that, five things I see, five things I hear, moving my attention from in to out, uh, filling my mind with the phrase, the phrase is critical because it crowds out all the other ang anxiety-provoking thoughts that you can have, just using the phrase, I am aware of the guitar, I am aware of the flowers, I am aware of the car across the street. Um, 
is one of the best strategies I have for self-regulation. So those are basically a, a few tools that you can take with you um, that are attention-based, they're just about what you move your attention to, or they're reflective, meaning you draw on your memory banks to utilize imagery that is remembered that you know will um, help to regulate you. And the last thing I have to say is that long-term capacity building for you know, self-regulation really is done in relationship with a practitioner who understands the terrain and is working in a system of trauma resolution, things like somatic experiencing, which is the system I work in, or EMDR, or any number of other um, systems. And if you're interested in doing that work, the, probably the first step is just getting a sense of what systems are available for people to work with traumatic content. So that's a lot of words and ideas. Um, I'm open to questions and conversation to the degree we have time to do that. Anybody listening besides you? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, anyone feel free if you have a question to type it in or raise your hand and we can turn your, your camera on if you want to come on and ask a question or feel free to unmute yourself and ask a question. Um, Pablo, we did have a question come in while you were talking by yeah, Rebecca. I can't, I can't see the chat room anymore. So that was one of my things. Oh, okay. Not to read it to me. Yeah. Um, so it says, what do you think are the most important meditations to use in a trauma-informed type of support group? Um, anything that supports the regulation of the nervous system. Um, so a couple things. Uh, if, if, if you're going to talk about traditional, when I teach meditation, I teach it really around two, spe with two specific intentions. One is what helps you stay present? People who have a trauma history have a hard time staying present. Um, so the and sometimes the breath is not the best thing in the world for that because the breath is an indication of how dysregulated you are often. So what I do is I give people agency to figure out what anchors work best for them. And if we had more time, I would take you through a, an exercise that I do with people where I basically, I do four one minute meditations. And I just ask them to reflect on how they, how they experience themselves after each of the various anchors. So I give people the breath as an option. I give people uh, points of contact. So any physical point of contact where one thing's touching another. And then I give people anchors that are outside of themselves physically. So I give them anything in the external visual field. So you can literally open your eyes and connect with something in the external field or sound. So that's the first thing is that I'm interested in what is it that helps people stay present? It might not be the breath. And what is it that helps people stay uh, regulated in terms of their nervous system? So there will be subtle differences between each of those uh, four anchors. Again, the breath, a point of contact, sound, or something in the external visual field. There will be big differences actually, if you really pay attention, between each of those anchors for people in terms of how present they can stay and how regulated they can be. Um, the other things that I would give in terms of meditations or anything that is, I would draw heavily on imagery. So what I like to do is pretty much what I did just then 
is I'll have people bring to mind some, some way connecting to something in their remembered memory banks, uh, connect with imagery of some either regulating situation or a regulating being. And that can be just another human being you feel relatively safe with or even a non-human being. It could be a face of your cat. It doesn't matter. But it's either attention-based or reflective practices to support presence and nervous system regulation. That's what I teach. Um, we have another question um, from Sabine. Um, and she was asking about having financial constraints um, that limit the ability to work one-on-one -on -one with a practitioner. And she was wondering if this can be done in a group or on the phone. Um, and that Jir also mentioned developing literature for refuge recovery. Oh, um, well, I don't know how to, I mean, the work of healing and connecting with practitioners costs money. And, and sometimes I have found, let me think about this. I'm aware of that what I'm about to say could be taken the wrong way. So let me say that I'm saying this with, with awareness of how it could be received. And I don't mean it the way that you could potentially receive it. But here's the thing. Sometimes in the trauma experience, there can be this sort of feeling like I, I can't do what needs to be done. I need someone else to do it, kind of do something to help me gain access. And that, that thing in and of itself, it can be a function of trauma. I don't know the person who asked that question. I don't know what their experience is. But there is a question like, well, you, you kind of got to just kind of figure out how to get the help you need one way or the other and not stay too long in a, in a kind of disempowered state. It just costs money and you have to figure out how to do it. And if it means that you take one session a month, then do that. But I, I think, can it be done in a group? Probably, maybe. I don't know very many. Yeah, I'm gonna say no, actually to that because the content of trauma is so personal I don't know. Maybe maybe the right answer is I don't know. My sense, it's probably best to do it in one-on-one -on -one work. There is, let me say this. There's a book by a guy named Peter Levine who developed somatic experiencing. And he actually, there's a, there's a really cheap book that has a CD in it. I'm not, I think it's, it's called something really simple like Healing Trauma. And it has a CD and that CD has a bunch of exercises that are made, I think, to try to give people the tools to kind of begin to do some of the work themselves. So that, that's a resource that probably could be helpful. But I think that the work is best done in relationship to someone who understands how to navigate the terrain. And that feels really important to me, which is why I don't think, 
Buddhist meditation is always a great um, option because we don't want to tell people just to go back and sit with it in silence. It really, that can be really not helpful. The other question was about developing, yes, developing programs. Um, and I've thought a lot about this. Um, you know, the refuge program is 12 years old and um, one of its flaws is that it doesn't really have any real awareness of trauma and how it functions. And, and frankly, I didn't have any awareness of it 12 years ago or whatever when we were having those conversations. Um, if I would, I think that the program should be reworked to be trauma uh, focused. Um, I look at it this way. I think the Dharma is great, has a lot of great tools for helping people manage trauma symptoms and not make them worse. I don't think the Dharma is, generally speaking, a path to resolution of trauma. So it needs to bring in other systems and other maps. Uh, but people who meditate are very well positioned to do the work of uh, resolution of trauma, like somatic experiencing or some of the other systems. Um, but a, a, a program for me would be one that integrates those where, and, and, and really the trauma piece would be central, not, not just a kind of like a small, but it would be like really like 50, 50. And um, that's a very long conversation. What else? Uh, we have another question. Uh, asking, is there a practice you suggest specifically for a lifelong food addiction due to childhood trauma? I mean, that's really hard to answer because it, without knowing the, I mean, I, it, when I work with people who have food addiction stuff, we spend a lot of time kind of getting into the background of what this person has been through. I mean, is there a practice in that question? And some of these questions are, are feel hard for me because there, there isn't a practice that's going to get to this. There's a process that's going to get to this. And, you know, food addiction, food addiction is so very deeply connected to relational, disruptions, like just, just interpersonal trauma. And it's very nuanced and it's very complicated sometimes. And I, I don't know that I could say that there's a practice that I could give you. Uh, what, what I think is needed is to enter into a real, a deep process around it. Um, my view on addiction, and I've probably said it already, is that, you know, I, I don't even, I don't even really, I mean, one of the things that I, I, I never was a, really a 12-step person, and part of the reason for that was I didn't like the idea that there was such a heavy identification necessarily with the particular thing that I did, like that I was an alcoholic. Because what I noticed is that as soon as the alcohol got kind of removed from my life, then it became about sex. And then once the sex got under control, it became about food and sugar. And it's really about how we relate to and, and work with and kind of heal or de deactivate the charge that is underneath 
the behavior. That the various behaviors, they do indicate something about the nature of the trauma, but the work is really about getting in and dealing with what's underneath and precedes the behavior. Because I believe addictive behaviors are always in response to something. If we really pay attention, addictive patterns, the behaviors, the things that we do, arise out of a certain set of conditions that, that we have to get to that stuff, that underlying content. And that's the stuff that's going to, um, when we start to really work with that in the appropriate way, the behaviors are going to fall away. But that's, there's no one practice for that. Sorry, <laughs> but it's, it's much more complicated than that. Um, okay, so I think uh, Chris has a convert, uh, question that he wanted to come on and ask. Um, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Thank you. Pablo, it's great to see you face-to-face. -face. I've been listening to you for a long time. Um, I discovered you when I was listening to I Guess the Stream podcast a while ago. So um, I appreciate you doing this. Thank you very much. Um, my connection was dropping off a lot, so I missed a lot of the meeting. I I see that it's being recorded, so I'm, I'm glad I need to go back and listen to it. Um, so if you've already addressed this, I apologize. I definitely have a history of trauma, early childhood. Um, and um, I, I've also had episodes of, of acute anxiety um, intermingled with depression. And uh, sometimes it's hard to figure out which one comes first. But in between those times, I don't suffer from like generalized anxiety and uh, my overall anxiety has gone down over the years and it's confused me um, from a diagnosis point of view. I've been on both sides of the counter, probably not as extensively. I don't have the experience you do, but I was wondering, um, is that unusual for people that have had trauma that they don't have like generalized anxiety, but they, but they do have periods of acute uh, episodes of prolonged anxiety mixed in actually where and if I remember to be honest it usually starts off with acute anxiety and then it kind of molds or kind of morphs into a clinical depression and that's happened about three or four times in my life anyway that's that's my question yeah so what what yeah maybe okay the way that I try to talk about that is what I kind of went into there towards the end is that the, the nervous system, we have basically, we're, we're, we are equipped with a physiology and a biology that can organize energy to respond to threat when it comes, whether that threat is physical threat or it's some kind of interpersonal relational threat, that the anxiety that we feel or the anger or whatever it is that we're working with is the energy of self-protection. The nervous system activates to respond to threat. And as I said, we have a, a, just a handful of ways that human beings find expression for that energy. They can confront the experience, which we call the fight response. They, they can, in an empowered way, hopefully remove themselves where you just say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not subjecting myself to this relationship or this set of conditions or whatever. Or we can go to our relational field for protection, for allyship, and for co-regulation. Um, 
If none of that is able to happen, and very often in our childhood, that's not able to happen. We can't fight our parents. We can't go anywhere because we're little kids, right? We can't leave. Um, there's no one to talk to. No one understands. Um, then the only option that we really have is to collapse. So that energy has to go somewhere. It goes to collapse. And the way that people actually experience it, I mean, for me, I've always, my orientation has always been stronger around anxiety. I've been prone to anxiety and panic all my life. I still have anxiety issues. Um, I now know how to kind of regulate myself out of them. I know also that my general capacity, depending on how I live my life, is also a factor. So how I eat, whether I sleep, um, what kind of relationships I have, you know, in my life. All There's all kinds of variables that contribute to capacity. But basically what we're talking about is that cycle of activation and deactivation. People who are traumatized are stuck in activation, right? Or they're stuck in the collapse. And that, yes, we can vacillate between those two things. As I was about to say, um, I, I have, my orientation has been to anxiety most of my life. But sometimes when the anxiety kind of is out of the way, I'm aware that there's always a moderate depression kind of kicking around underneath there. And, that, and I notice what I notice about depression is that the depression is usually very much will increase around relationship. I think depression is essentially a relational issue. Um, and that's a very, very long conversation probably. Um, so no, what you're describing is not abnormal at all. It's totally makes sense to me. I work with people all the time who are kind of having that experience. I have it myself. As they used to say, there was this old commercial hair club for men. I'm not just the CEO, I am also a customer, right? So I know that experience directly. So no, it is not abnormal. And what has to happen is that that charge, that energy that is bound in the system, what's Bessel van der Kolk's book on trauma is the body keeps the score. It lives in the body, it lives in the physiology. And we have to address the charge that's in the system and kind of begin to rewire ourselves so that we can regulate in ways that we, were never, we never developed the capacity to in the past. Okay, thanks for listening. This was a recording from the Academy. Tune in the first Sunday of the month to be a part of the next one, which will be August 4th, a few days after my birthday. So you should just tune in just to wish me a happy birthday. <laughs> if you have Donna or a donation to offer, you can do so at BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash donation. You can either donate towards the teaching by choosing the podcast option or donate to offer scholarships to the summit. We are trying to make a lot happen on very limited funds. Everything we do comes from donation, as is the Dharma way. Thank you again. May we dedicate all we have learned today to those suffering. May we offer peace to ourselves so that we may offer that peace to our communities. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>